It's always a, a joy to be able to worship God together. Thanks to Matt and the team for leading us this morning and this evening in our worship of God. A wonderful joy to be able to just sing and lift up our voices together as God's people in our worship of the Lord. And it's uh, that time this evening where we come to God's Word, so please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, Mark chapter 10. Uh, We're continuing our uh, relatively high-speed trip through Mark's Gospel. We're trying to take more or less a a chapter a Sunday evening, so we are working through larger chunks than perhaps uh, we normally do, Uh, and this provides us with some challenges in terms of knowing what to leave out, uh, but also helps in us getting a a big picture overview of of the key message that Mark uh, has tried to drive home and is trying to drive home in his gospel account. And so let's read together Mark chapter 10 this evening. And Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up in order to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. And they were bringing children to him that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and blessed them, laying his hands on them. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and your mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. 
Peter began to say to him, see, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be lost and the last first. So far in God's word this evening. Uh, one of the problems that we have in, in much of Christianity today, I think, is the disconnect uh, between what we say we believe uh, and the way that we live our lives as Christians. It's not uncommon today to have the accusation leveled against us as Christians calling us hypocrites because it is increasingly evident, generally speaking, that our lives seldom look any different from the world around us. And these inconsistencies between what we preach or what we believe and how we live are often most evident seen in, in, in three spheres of life which Jesus addresses in Mark chapter 10, namely the areas of marriage and munchkins and money. Munchkins was just better than miners. I had to find three M's. Um, now, if you, if you think about it, probably 80 to 90% uh, of our waking hours are spent in these three spheres of life, marriage and family and work. And what we see as we come to Mark 10 is that Jesus relates all three of these areas directly back to the gospel. Our attitude to marriage, our attitude to children and material wealth are all directly related to our understanding of the gospel. And we would do well tonight to examine our marriages, to examine our families, to examine our relationship to money and possessions in the light of what Jesus says about these things in Mark 10. Now, the context of this chapter is that Jesus has completed his period of ministry in the region of Galilee and is now busy making his way down to Jerusalem. But he does so by crossing over to the eastern side of the Jordan River to the region of the Decapolis and Perea, where the tribes of Manasseh and Reuben and Gad had originally settled. And although the majority of Jesus' ministry had been done in Galilee, nevertheless, the fame of Jesus had, had passed throughout all the land as a result of his miracles and his teaching and casting out of demons. Everyone across the whole country knew who Jesus was. And so when he gets to this region, even beyond the Jordan, we find that large crowds gather to him, and as was his custom, Jesus stops and he spends time there in order to teach them. So it seems that over the period that Jesus spent in this Perean region, as Jesus taught the people, Mark selects three aspects of Jesus' teaching to include in this short, action-packed gospel. There was no doubt more that Jesus had to say, but these three that Mark selects all have to do with spheres of normal, everyday life, with marriage and children and material possessions. But in each case, Jesus addresses gross misunderstandings and he corrects wrong thinking about these areas of normal life and he shows how each of these areas needs to be brought under the direct submission and lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
So already up front this evening, we have a, a very practical challenge going into this chapter. Because if your marriage and if your family and if your attitude to money is not in line with Jesus' teaching in this chapter, then you should be very cautious to call yourself a Christian. Being a disciple of Jesus means the submission of your whole life to Jesus' teaching and will for your life. And so it doesn't really matter how much you love coming to church on Sundays or serving in ministries or how much you think you are a Christian. If your marriage and your family and your work life are not submitted to Christ the way Jesus speaks of here this evening, then think about it. What really is left to identify you as a true follower of Christ? This is the majority of life. And so we start in verses 1 to 12 this evening to see what Jesus has to say about marriage. Jesus on marriage and divorce in verses 1 to 12. Now in Israel at this time, most towns had a Jewish synagogue, and wherever there was a synagogue, you would find Pharisees. Pharisees were the religious leaders of the day, and they were very much aware of Jesus and his ministry, and they sought every opportunity they could get uh, to try and oppose him and undermine uh, his teaching and his authority. And so we see in verse 2, they come to Jesus and they try to trick him. That's what the word test means. It's really to try and trap him uh, into saying something which incriminate himself or to cast doubts over his ministry. And so they, they come to Jesus and they, they don't question him about marriage. They question him about divorce. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so because they claim to be interested in the law, asking, is it lawful? Jesus points them straight back to Scripture to examine the law. And he says to them, well, what did Moses command you? And their response reveals a knowledge of the letter of the law. And the passage that they're referring to is Deuteronomy chapter 24. But what they reveal in their answer is an utter misunderstanding of the spirit or the intention of the law. When they respond with, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Now some context is helpful here uh, before we continue because by this time, there were two main camps uh, within Jewish teaching specifically which differed on this topic of divorce. There was the conservative teaching of Shammai and, and his followers who believed that the law of God only allowed divorce in the case of adultery or of marital unfaithfulness. And then there was the more liberal camp, uh, the interpretation of Hillel uh, and his followers who believed that a man could divorce his wife for any and every reason. We get a, a slightly fuller picture of this in Matthew's account, Matthew chapter 19, uh, where Matthew reports in verse 3 that Pharisees came to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, for any reason? So the Jewish community was divided on this issue, and this was a, a very clever tactic of the Pharisees to trap Jesus, because at worst, depending on what Jesus answered, he would alienate half of the Jewish community. But at best, they would be able to get Jesus into such a mess on this topic uh, that he would be entirely discredited. But Jesus will firstly not be drawn into their foolish games, and secondly, won't let this opportunity pass to teach them 
and those who are listening, God's true desire and purpose for marriage. And so Jesus firstly corrects their misunderstanding of Moses by pointing out that Moses' command about giving a man, a, 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 giving his wife a certificate of divorce was not a command which condoned divorce, but rather it was given as a concession because of the deep sinfulness of their hearts, the, the hardness of their hearts, in order to protect the rights of women in a very patriarchal and female oppressive society. You see, if we go back to the early days of Deuteronomy 24, unmarried women almost had no rights or standing in society. And contrary to, to God's pattern for marriage as a lifelong commitment between a man and a woman, men were divorcing their wives or, or rejecting their wives for all kinds of trivial reasons and simply discarding their wives to live the rest of their lives in disgrace while the men went on and took new wives for themselves. And these women were then considered to be defiled and they were being exploited by men because they could not get remarried because according to God's law, they still actually remained married to their husbands who had now rejected them. And so Moses' command in Deuteronomy 24 was given to regulate divorce, to be limited to the case of indecency, that's what Deuteronomy 24 speaks about. It refers to some form of scandalous or immoral or shameful behavior. And in that case, the husband was required to then issue a formal certificate of divorce, which then freed both him and his wife from the original marriage contract so that they could get remarried. So contrary to the implication that Moses' command to men to issue the certificate of a divorce, condone divorce, Jesus points out that at best it was a concession as a result of the hardness of their sinful hearts and as a means to protect the abuses being committed against women. But then what Jesus does next is very instructive. He does not get drawn into the debates of Shammai or Hillel and how they interpreted the law of Moses. He goes back beyond Moses to the very beginning to take the Pharisees back to God's original pattern and purpose for marriage. Look at verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, here is a, a wonderful lesson on how to defend ourselves against the attacks of Satan uh, on the Word of God in our day and age. As we consider the, the modern liberal context of sexuality and gender and marriage, we can learn from Jesus to simply go back to the truth of God's word as revealed in the very beginning, and we elevate that truth back to its rightful place of authority over our lives. That's what Jesus does here. Just look at those verses and see how the statement of Jesus cuts across so many of the debates that we find in ourselves immersed in, in Johannesburg in 2023. 
Verse 6a, from the beginning of creation, Jesus says. Now that cuts right across all the so-called evolutionary beliefs of our culture today. Jesus goes back to the beginning when God created. Verse 6b, God made them male and female, two binary genders, both in the image of God for the unique and the beautiful purpose of marriage. Verse 7, therefore a man shall leave his parents and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This and only this coming together as a man and a woman in marriage is what constitutes a biblical marriage. When God joins two people together as an inseparable bond until death. So Jesus goes back to God's original pattern and he reinstates or reaffirms God's original pattern as the ongoing pattern for marriage for all time. Jesus says that except for the case of sexual immorality, now that's not in our passage, but it's in the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, Jesus adds that clause that except in the case of sexual immorality, if a man divorces his wife or if a wife divorces her husband, which is also here something quite unique because in this culture, women were not allowed to divorce their husbands, only men were. And so Jesus elevates women again to that equal position of men in society. If a man divorces his wife or a woman divorces her husband, they are sinning against God and against their spouse by committing adultery. Now I realize that on a pastoral level, we are living in a day and age where the statistics of divorce are probably not far off from what they were in Moses' time uh, or in Jesus' time, at least in the camp of Hillel, where you could literally divorce your wife because she burnt the toast, for real. And I know that this teaching on divorce is, is difficult, especially because we've drifted so far from the high view of marriage given to us throughout Scripture, that instead of Divorce being the concession, in extreme cases, it has now become the norm. And lifelong marriages of 50 or 60 years are now considered to be the extreme cases. But be that as it may, Jesus is showing the Pharisees and his disciples what God's will is, what God's desire is, God's purpose and pattern for marriage as one commentator puts it so well, from the beginning, marriage meant one man and one woman becoming one flesh for one lifetime. One man, one woman, one flesh, one lifetime. Now I also know that this teaching of Jesus tonight may cut very close to some of you who have suffered much in terrible or perhaps even abusive marriages, who've perhaps already gone through a divorce and the deep wounds that it has left. Perhaps you are the children here tonight uh, of families that have experienced the hurt and the brokenness of seeing your parents go through a divorce and the ugliness of experiencing the two most important people in your life turning against each other. And so I realize that there may be a whole host of what-if questions here this evening. 
What if the person I'm married to is verbally and emotionally abusive? What if the person I'm married to is an unbeliever who hates God? What if I no longer love them? What if they no longer love me? What if I was divorced many years ago? What if I decide to get divorced anyway? What if I just cannot see a way forward in the brokenness of my marriage anymore? What if I don't want to get married because I've seen the hurt that it caused in my parents? These are all very real questions this evening. And if you are asking any of those questions tonight, we would love to hear from you as elders of this church and to see how we can best support you to find the answers to your questions in the Word of God. Each one of those questions comes from a place of hurt and vulnerability. And I want to state tonight that Jesus understands exactly where you are at in your marriage or in your struggle, and he wants to show you his grace to bring healing and blessing where there is currently only sadness or anger or betrayal or deep wounds of relational hurt. And so I would ask that if you are in this space tonight, please reach out, perhaps to your small group leader, uh, reach out to one of us as elders or the pastors. We would be happy to come alongside you in this. But can I remind us all tonight from the words of Jesus himself in the, the parallel account in Matthew 19, that although there is much, there was much brokenness in marriage then, there is much brokenness in marriage today, Jesus said, from the beginning, this was not so. This was never God's plan. And in Jesus Christ, God's plan and purposes for marriage can be redeemed and restored to the beautiful purpose that God always intended for our marriages to be the ultimate human picture of God's love for his church, his people, the picture of Jesus' love for the church, which is his bride. What God has purposed for marriage is good, it's glorious, and it's fueled by the gospel. You see, God's love for us is an unbreakable covenant. God's love for us is unconditional. God's love for us is sacrificial. God's love for us is patient and kind. God's love for us is for our good. In other words, God's love for us is the gospel. It is the good news. And Jesus is calling us back to, to this high view of God's love for us as we consider the subject of marriage, of what it should be if we are looking to get married or what it can become if we are already married. So having dealt with the whole issue of marriage and correcting a, a low and distorted view of marriage, it's appropriate that Mark moves on next to the next subject of daily life, which flows out from marriage, generally speaking, and that is the subject of munchkins. Uh, so we have in, sec in second place, Jesus on children uh, and parental priorities. And I think these three verses are very instructive just like marriage had become something which was devalued and trampled on in society of Jesus' day, so too had the place, the role of children, been devalued and distorted. 
children, I think Shane mentioned last week, uh, occupied a very low and insignificant place in society. They were to be seen and not heard, but preferably not seen either. Now, now we live today in a very strange time in history when it comes to children, where our distorted and unbiblical view of children takes on literally two opposite extremes. Just, just think this through with me. On the one hand, children are so devalued in our day more than ever before in history as seen in the worldwide proliferation of abortion. See, in Jesus' time, not only did they have a generally low view of women, but an equally low view of children. And so if a mother gave birth to a baby girl, well, it was not uncommon for the fathers to insist that the baby girl is discarded to die. But today, this same attitude stems from a propagation of teaching and the belief system of evolution, which says, well, you know what? Human life is nothing more than that of animals. An unborn baby is simply a, a collection of cells and chemicals and, and maybe a few electrical pulses, and it can be discarded in the womb so as to not inconvenience our lives or in any way inhibit our depraved sexual lusts. In actual fact, in our society today, you are more likely to get arrested and criminally charged for cruelty to a pregnant dog who then loses its puppies, unborn puppies, than you are for killing a person in a mother's womb. And this low view of children leads to the killing of approximately 110 to 120,000 babies, unborn babies, in South Africa every year. And it's given the very liberating title of pro-choice. So that's the one extreme that we find ourselves in today, an extremely low view of children. And yet, on the opposite extreme, we live in a society today which places living children at the very center of our social universe, where parents literally idolize their kids and their sporting and academic achievements and worship their kids as if they are some kind of demigods, spending hundreds of thousands of rands on their education and, and fashion and gadgets and toys and cars and holidays, even immigrating to another country if that's what it requires so that Johnny or Jane will know that the world truly does revolve around them and Daddy and Mommy are their biggest fans. What a timeless message it is to hear the words of Jesus as he corrects his disciples' wrong view of children, but he also corrects our warped, distorted view of children today. Firstly, we see in verse 13 that the parents were bringing the little children. The word could well refer to infants to Jesus so that he could lay his hands on them and bless them. But the disciples rebuke the parents. When Jesus sees this, he becomes indignant with his disciples. That's a word which speaks of anger, outrage at their conduct, and he rebukes his disciples and insists that the children be brought to him. Now, there are two correctives that we can learn from this event. Firstly, we see Jesus correcting their low view of children in the minds of the disciples. The, the disciples saw children as insignificant, not worth distracting the great teacher, Jesus, from all the important stuff that he was doing with the adults. This attitude angered Jesus, 
This word is only ever used here for his deep disapproval of his disciples because as Jesus explains, to such as these belong the kingdom of God. Now the love of Jesus for these children as, as created in his image, just as valid recipients of his grace and salvation and blessing and time as the adults, it just shines forth from the pages of Scripture. This was no lip service to the value and the dignity and the worth of children because we see in verse 16 that Jesus requires or requests that the children be brought to him and he takes them in his arms. What a wonderful picture of the creator of the universe sitting with little children in his arms as he blesses them and he lays his hands on them and Matthew's gospel talks about praying for them. What a wonderful corrective we have to the very low view of children in our world today, which either kills babies in the womb so that they never have the opportunity of being embraced in the arms of Jesus and receiving the blessing of his salvation, or which downplays the importance, for example, of our children's ministries in the life of the church, thinking that's only what's done for the big people is what really matters. As we think of our ministries and our budgets, and do we really treat our children as Jesus does here? Jesus says, whether it's in your homes, as you teach and instruct your little ones in the Lord through family devotions and prayer times, whether it's in our honeybees creche or Bible land on Sundays or compass and edge and fusion on Fridays, what does Jesus say? Bring the children to me. Bring them to me. Do not hinder them from coming to me, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of God. But the other corrective we learn from this encounter is as parents to develop a right view of our children. And so here I'm trying to speak to the other extreme. The, the one corrective is to elevate children in the, in the proper place of God's purposes in his kingdom. But the second corrective is really to correct our hearts as parents to have a right view of our children which is, and that which is ultimately most important for them. Jesus' rebuke here not only corrects the, the low view of children, but it also indirectly affirms that the parents who were bringing the children had a right view of Jesus. These parents wanted nothing more than to get their children to Jesus. And here is where I think so many of us as parents, perhaps as grandparents this evening, have lost the plot when it comes to our children and our grandchildren. If we can turn this deeply indignant rebuke of Jesus around, rebuking the disciples for not letting the children come to him, we see then that there is nothing which pleases Jesus more than when parents lead their little ones to him, when parents seek Jesus' touch and blessing on our kids' lives. You see, the sin today in many Christian homes is not the overvaluing of our children so much as it is the undervaluing of Jesus. Very practically, this reveals itself in our homes when our children get to decide if and when we have family devotions or Bible reading time together, whether it fits into their TV schedule or not, or when our kids' school and sporting activities take such a priority in our families' lives over attending church together on Sundays. 
or when our goals and our dreams for our kids means that we pack their lives so full of extra lessons and extra coaching and extra mural activities that there is literally no time left for God in their lives. Or they are so exhausted when we bring them to youth or to church that they literally cannot stay awake or take anything in. Or when we move our families away from a solid church where they are loved and taught the word of God and we move them to a more secular environment because it promises better education, better sporting and better career opportunities for our children. All of these things don't so much reveal an overinflated view of our children. It, it's certainly not less than that. But at its core, it reveals a sadly devalued view of Jesus. How many of you as parents can genuinely say tonight that your greatest desire is for your children to be embraced in the arms of Jesus that he might bless them with salvation. I would hope that every single one of us would affirm that. If we claim that, how does that practically work itself out in our family and in our priorities? When if we are honest, most of our time and our energy and our money spent on our kids is actually keeping them away from Jesus. So as with the previous section on marriage, there's another gospel lesson here that is, Jesus is teaching us about children. And, and the gospel lesson in the previous section is that human marriage is meant to be a picture of God's marriage to and love for his people. Now in this section on children, the gospel lesson is that little children represent the only attitude of faith in God and receiving of the gospel that is acceptable to God. You see, in this culture, children were seen to be nothing. They had nothing to offer. They had nothing by which they could earn or deserve the blessing of God. And what does Jesus do? He welcomes them into his arms and he blesses them. And he says to these little nothings in his arms, whoever does not receive the gift of salvation like these children will not enter into the kingdom of God. Of course, Jesus was at the same time correcting a wrong view of children, whether that was either a too low or a too high view of children, but ultimately the gospel instruction in this encounter is to point each one of us to our need to receive the Lord Jesus Christ as a little child in humility, in weakness, and in complete dependence on his grace. And lastly then, Mark's third interaction with Jesus on the other side of the Jordan covers the, the third aspect of normal day life. And for some of us, it's the largest, particularly if you are single here tonight, this is most certainly the, the largest and probably most important aspect of your life, and that is our focus on working for and acquiring wealth. And so in the third place, we see Jesus on money and all that it can buy in verse 17 to 31. And we really don't have time tonight to explore the depths of this interaction between Jesus and this rich young ruler. I'm sure we know the account well. Uh, we also know that Jesus has much to say in the Gospels and the rest of the New Testament on this whole issue of money and riches. Uh, we could easily spend a couple sermons on this topic but I think in the flow of the context of Mark 10, it, it seems that Mark is wanting us to show again, uh, show us again, 
the lordship of Jesus Christ in every sphere of life. And now it's the sphere of work and money. In other words, if Jesus is Lord, then our marriages will be beautiful and and reflect the permanent love of Jesus Christ for the church. If Jesus is Lord, then our families will reflect the beauty and the value of Jesus as we center our faith and our home and that of our children on knowing and receiving the blessing of Jesus Christ and the gospel. And similarly here, if Jesus is Lord, then our attitude to wealth and possessions will reflect an attitude of sacrificial worship of God. We will value Jesus as the object of ultimate worth and his church as the reward of greatest value on this side of the grave. Now, firstly, we see that Jesus corrects the issue of idolatry in the heart of this rich young ruler. We know that this was a good man, good young man. He was sincere, he was religious. He claimed to have obeyed most of the Ten Commandments for all of his life. Outwardly, he had it all together. He was young, he was rich, he was religious, he was devoted, he was sincere, he was probably good-looking. But despite all of these positive traits, Jesus saw into his heart and knew that this man did not have a money problem. He had a worship problem. Money was his God. And everything about his identity was bound up in what he had accumulated of this world's possessions. Now, if that's maybe where you find yourself tonight, chasing after money, chasing after this world's possessions, what is highly instructive for us is that this man who had everything knew that he actually had nothing. Despite his great wealth and all that money could buy him, he runs to Jesus. This was undignified in the day. And then as a ruler, a rich young ruler, he kneels down before Jesus And he asks Jesus, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? Despite all that he had, despite all that he had done in terms of religious observance of the law, he knew that he lacked eternal life. Something was missing. And Jesus, we are told, looked at him and loved him. And knowing his heart, he tells him quite simply, just give up your idol." Exchange your worship of money for the worship of God and you will have treasures stored up in heaven and eternal life. Come and follow me. And the man left disheartened, depressed, the word could, could mean by the reality of Jesus' words, sorrowful of what it would cost him to gain eternal life. So Jesus turns to his disciples and says, how difficult it is for those who have great wealth to enter the kingdom of God. So hard, in fact, that it's like trying to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle. And people have tried to talk this away, but it means what it says. But please don't miss verse 24, because we tend to focus on how hard it is for the rich to get into the kingdom of heaven. The disciples, we are told, were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult, period, it is to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, for the rich, it's difficult. But for the poor, it's also difficult. And for the middle class, it's just as difficult. And the disciples got that. No matter what station in life you are in, we all have heart idols which keep us from truly embracing and in worshiping God. 
And so we see in verse 26, the disciples were now exceedingly astonished. And they said to him, well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and and said, with man, it's impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. So whether you are rich or poor, male or female, young or old, married or single, it's impossible to save yourself. Because you cannot give up the idols of your heart. Salvation is a gift that must be received like a child. And the only way to receive this saving grace into your heart is to first empty your heart from that which previously and presently it worships. And don't take my word for it. Jesus says that's impossible. So the disciples rightly conclude, well, then how can anyone be saved? Well, they should have known the answer because God told Ezekiel how they can be saved. Ezekiel 36 verse 25, I, says God, will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, from all your idols I will cleanse you. I'll do it, says God, and then I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I'll put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. It's only when God does the impossible in our hearts by giving us a spiritual heart transplant that we are able to value Jesus as the object of ultimate worth and worthy of all our worship, irrespective of the cost and our station in life. And finally, then, we see that Jesus corrects an overinflated view of personal prosperity and, and a corresponding low view of the church. Peter realizes in this encounter with the rich young ruler that they, as the disciples, had actually given up everything to follow Jesus. And in the context of their day, which quite surprisingly is not very different to the prosperity gospel of our day, the religious leaders taught that riches and wealth were a sign of God's blessing on those who are his children. And so the more you sow your seeds of faith, by giving your money away, the more God will bless you with abundant personal wealth. And so Peter wants to now cash in on this moment, reminding Jesus just how much they had given to follow him. Perhaps he's wanting to know what that would translate to in terms of heavenly treasures in verse 21, but possibly Peter was just thinking like most of us tend to. How much would Jesus give me in this life? in terms of personal prosperity because of all that I gave up for him. And Jesus responds by elevating the salvation, blessings, and reward of being a member of the church. This is amazingly instructive. Look at verse 29. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left, now follow the logic, house, or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel, who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, what? Houses, and brothers, and sisters, and mothers, and children, and lands, and persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. 
Man, the prosperity gospel preachers have totally butchered this verse. Look at what Jesus says. If you and I have given up anything in this life in order to follow Jesus, house or family or possessions, you will receive a hundredfold money in your bank account. BMWs in the driveway. No, you will receive houses and brothers and sisters. The prosperity gospels never tell you and mothers and children and mother-in-laws and lands and with persecutions. It all comes What a wonderful description of belonging to the church of Jesus Christ. What an incredibly high view Jesus gives here of the church. He says, no matter what you've given up personally for Christ in following Jesus, guess what? You get the church. You get to share in the hospitality of a hundred households. You get a hundred new brothers and a hundred new sisters and a hundred mothers and a hundred children. And not just in this local church, but you can travel to a hundred lands and you will find the church gathering and you can be part of that too. No amount of personal riches or prosperity can ever replace the riches you have in being a member of the family of God. But make no mistake, with that comes persecutions because Satan, as we've seen this morning and last week, is opposed to the church. But in the end, in the age to come, your guarantee, says Jesus, is eternal life. So as I close tonight, is Jesus really Lord of your life? Have you truly submitted every area of your life to him? starting with your marriage and your children and then your work and your wealth? If so, then Jesus says you are the bride of Christ. You are the children of God and members of his kingdom and you have great treasure stored up in heaven because for all eternity you will have Jesus. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again this evening for your word. We thank you for this very straightforward instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ on effectively that which occupies almost all of our lives, marriage and family and work and possessions. Lord Jesus, we want to come and ask for forgiveness this evening where where we have not valued you as we ought. We have not valued you as we should have in our marriages. We have certainly not valued you as we should have in the lives of our children. And we have not valued you in this world of shiny things and possessions and money. So we pray that this evening again you would stir our hearts to, be, to, to just marvel at your grace to us in the gospel. That we are saved because you did the impossible. Because you took us as those who were nothing and you adopted us into your very family. Lord, help us, we pray, as individuals, in our marriages and families, and as a local church, to become more and more Christ-centered, more and more appreciative of who you are and what you have done for us in the gospel, and also that it might increase our view of the local church and the wonderful joys and privileges of belonging to your body. And may you be glorified in us and through us, for we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.